to Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to begin in verse 25. I'll give you a few seconds to get there. Luke 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law, and what is your reading of it? And he answered, and he said, And this is from Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind as your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, "Uh, you have answered rightly, do this and you'll live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, then who is my neighbor? Jesus answered and he gave him a parable. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him. And departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed him by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, insistent to the priest, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever amount you spend when I come, I will repay you. So Jesus said, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? The man said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, you have answered rightly, Go and do likewise. So we're studying the parables of Luke. Parables are stories. They're extended metaphors. Uh, It was Jesus' way to turn the ear into an eye. To give us a spiritual truth we would never forget. That through the ages we would understand. This may be the most familiar parable, the Good Samaritan. You stop anyone in America, they may not be able to tell you the story. But if you ask, what's a Good Samaritan? They'll say someone who helps someone they don't even know. So uh, through the ages, this has come down to us. We understand what it is. We have good Samaritan laws. Um, But there's something deeper going on here. And to understand it, you have to understand who or what a Samaritan is. And uh, you guys know I'm going to tell you that, right? Uh, A Samaritan uh, was despised by the Jews for this reason. When Joshua brought the people into the land... He apportioned the land by tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. They were given the land. And uh, Israel was united all the way through the reign of King Solomon. After Solomon's reign, the kingdom became divided. The northern 10 tribes were called Israel. The southern tribes were called Judah. And uh, the northern kingdom had a series of, I think, 20 terrible, horrible kings. The southern kingdom had good kings and bad kings. They had evil kings, then reformers, but the kingdom was divided. The northern tribe said, we don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore. It's too far of a journey. We can worship at Mount Gerizim. They can worship at the high places. And they started to incorporate pagan rituals there. When the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, the Jews intermarried with them. So the southern kingdom looked at them like they were half-breeds. They were sellouts, that their worship was inferior. They were pagan. And so they had no dealings with them. By Jesus' day, 
this ethnic rift was so strong, you can pick up the flavor of it in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets a woman at the well. Now, a lot of us pass by this phrase where it said Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And the reason he needed to go through there is when you traveled, most people, even though Samaria was the direct route, they would travel around it because they didn't want to have any dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus needed to go there. And he meets this woman at the well and he asked her for a drink. And she's startled that he being a man would speak to her. But she says, how is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Um... Extra-biblical writers tell us that, they, that Jews wouldn't eat off plates that Samaritans had used. They thought women were constantly menstruating, therefore they were unclean. Theologically, she says, well, we, we Samaritans worship at Mount Gerizim, you, you Jews worship at Jerusalem. What's the right way? And Jesus said, well, we worship what we know, worship is at Jerusalem. I find it interesting that even though Jesus would have compassion on her, and tell her she could be filled with living water and all the benefits of every human being, he still told her there was a truth in the scriptures. Now, even without that background and that understanding, the parable speaks of itself, right? We look at the parable and we get it, right? I, I need to be kind to others no matter what it costs me, and sectarianism and bigotry is wrong. Everybody on my planet in this global community is my neighbor, but I think there's something greater Jesus was driving at. There's something deeper here than those three things. And it all begins with this lawyer's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he wasn't saying to Jesus, how do I get to heaven? That's our Western thinking. What he was saying to Jesus is, how do I live the life God wants me to live? How do I live in such a way where I get up in the morning and I feel his power and I feel his grace and I understand why I was put on this planet? Yes, I want to live forever, but if eternal life starts now, how do I feel one with God? This is a man who through intellect, he was a doctor of the Hebrew law, had spent his time getting close to God through the intellect, and he comes to Jesus and says, how do I live the life God wants me to live? How do I be happy in this world? It's a question every one of us has asked, every human being that's ever lived. It's a question that every religion tries to answer. And every religion answers it in two ways. Number one, join our tribe, right? You know, we have the corner in God, the inside track on God, join our tribe and you'll have eternal life. Shaquille O'Neal the other day was asked a question because his dad was a Muslim, his mom was a Christian, and they were asking him what he was. And he said, I'm a Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, Baptist, Jewish, and it sounds cool, right? All roads lead to God, and we're all one big happy family. And what Shaquille O'Neal doesn't know is that every religion that he named claims exclusivity. You know, Buddhists don't think all roads lead to God. No, they think their way is the one that works. And then religion says, how do I inherit eternal life? What do I do? Okay, here's the rule book. Do this and you'll live. Every single religion. Jesus, and you miss this if you read it too quick, says something far different. It's profound. I'm going to paraphrase it. He looks at this lawyer and he says, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? The Bible that Jesus and this lawyer read were the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the son of God, and 
you know, I'm holy and I've come down to tell you a better and new way and here's a new law and here's a new way to eternal life. Here's a heavy revelation you've never heard before. No, he says, what does the Bible say? And that's important for you and me today because God has given us a communication system. This is a message system from God. This is otherworldly. It is the word of God. Jesus knew it. That's why when Satan tempted him three times, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word out of the mouth of God. Every time Jesus was put on a dilemma, he would answer the question by saying, it was written that in the beginning God created them male or female, and he would always quote the word of God. Here's why. The heavens declare the glory of God, the earth is his handiwork. You know, you'd have to be an idiot or an educated idiot to go outside and look at this world or go to a zoo or look at animals or look at how this planet's been put together or look at the creativity of human beings and not say there's a God, right? I mean, it's impossible. That's why we have an intelligent design movement, scientists who are brilliant and say, you know what? I don't know what being created all this, but this was designed. You know, a mindless, guideless process, evolution, natural selection, could have never produced all this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what's the word of God say? The heavens declare the glory of God, the earth is his handiwork, but if God is God, he would have communicated to the people that he loves. Jesus believed the word of God was something you could stand on. It was an anchor to the soul. It was a message system from God. And we as Christians will never make it till we nail that down. Until this becomes your rule of life, you will struggle with all the conundrums of our society, all the social questions being answered today. But Jesus said, what does the Bible say? I don't have time to prove the Bible's the word of God. I do that a lot. But I love these quirky ways where people are just astounded by it. I have this series I bought years ago at Barnes & Noble where, because the King James Version is public domain, they took the eight books that they thought were the best books of the Bible, they put them in little paperbacks with really cool design, so it didn't even look like the Bible, they put it in a little box set, and they had famous celebrities like Bono of U2 and different actors write the introduction. So Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books, and they got Doris Lessing to write the introduction. She's a famous novelist from England. This is what she wrote. She said, it's something of an undertaking to write even a few words about a text that has inspired mountains of exegetics, commentaries, analysis over so many centuries and so many languages, and you have not read one word of it. Immodesty, it could be called, and when I allow myself to think about my audacity, I do feel a little breeze of elation which, considered, turns out to be a mild attack of panic. But most readers will be in the same innocent condition if they have never read Ecclesiastes at all. Once, and not long ago, everybody in Britain, and for that matter, everyone in the Christian world, was subject to the obligation of going to church where every Sunday was heard the thundering magnificence, magnificence of this prose. And so, ever after, that would have been able to identify the origin of phrases and sayings, which are as much a part of our language as Shakespeare. She said, these days, if someone hears there's a time to be born, a time to die, they probably do think it's Shakespeare, since the Bible these days is experienced by so few. Ecclesiastes, who's he? But an innocent, even an ignorant reader may discover a good deal 
by using simple observation. You know what she's saying? She's saying, I've written all my life, and I've never read this book of Ecclesiastes. She expected to find dry ritual and found what she said compares to Shakespeare. Years ago, a Time magazine came. I think we have a picture of it on the screen. Why we should teach the Bible in public schools. I almost fell on the floor. I couldn't believe it. You know, this must be the liberal of all the of weeklies. And I read the article, and what they were saying is, we have very little works of antiquity, and here's a book that gives us the entire history of a nation. It's filled with poetry and prose and gospels, and if it wasn't for religion, this would be the most studied book in the world, and we should study it in public schools. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was fascinated by the Jews. Thousands of them lived in Mecca and Medina. And he looked at them and he called them the people of the book. He was astounded because they had one God and one book. This is the Bible Jesus read and believed in. And if we're going to make it, we've got to believe it's the very word of God. So we asked the lawyer, what does the Bible say? And the lawyer fantastically answers, love God and love your neighbor. You know, the first five commandments are all about how to love God. The second five are all about how to love your neighbor. He quotes Deuteronomy, love your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Love that. You know you can worship God with your mind? Some people recoil from that. They think, oh, no, that's dead, dry religion. No, that's wonderful. God gave us a brain. And, and you can read the Bible as a child or the greatest minds can explore it for a lifetime. Where would we be without the brilliance of C.S. Lewis, Ravi Zacharias, Malcolm Muggridge, Calvin, Thomas Aquinas? And then we can love God with our heart. We can be charismatic. We can enjoy the gifts. We can feel his presence. We can feel goosebumps. We can write the Psalms as David did. And then we can use our hands, our talents, our gifts, helping the sick, so forth and so on. Was the lawyer sincere in questioning Jesus? Most commentators say no. Mainly because it starts off by saying he asked a question to test Jesus. But I don't have a problem with that because if this man studied the Bible all his life and Jesus is an upstart rabbi who's somewhat controversial, then I think he should be tested, right? We're told to test the spirits. I really think the man was inquisitive. I think he really wanted to know the question of the ages. What's eternal life? How do we live for purpose? His question wasn't frivolous or improbable. His problems are a problem. He has the same questions we have. You know, when we see hurting people and, and when we think about our neighbor, you know, I know I think this, God, do I love everyone? I mean, this is a big world. There's a lot of need. Isn't the line drawn somewhere? I go through the whole process in my mind that people make horrific choices and that's why they are where they are and you know, uh, I can't help everyone, and we have a government, and there's food stamps and welfare, and, you know, I try and justify myself. I ask, who's my neighbor? This is a pretty shrewd, smart guy. And he says to Jesus, okay, I've tried this all my life, but I have one question. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus, rather than telling him, gives him a parable. And the reason for the parable is to draw something out of all of us. There's something about the parable where the Holy Spirit's going to move us. And he says this man was left half dead. The priest passed him by. The Levite passed him by. But the Samaritan 
bandaged him, clothed him, and took him to an inn. And then Jesus answers the question. His question was, what can I do? And Jesus said, who had mercy on him? And he couldn't even say the Samaritan, right? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. What can I do? He goes, you want to do something? Go and do likewise. Go and be like the Samaritan. Now, I believe he asked the wrong question. He asked the wrong question. Rather than asking, who is my neighbor, he should have said, Jesus, I've tried this all my life. I've tried to love people my entire life. He should have answered the way Paul did, the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I do, I don't want to do, a wretched man that I am. Jesus, I know what God's standard is. I've read the Old Testament. God loves the orphan, the widow. He loves the poor and the marginalized. But God, every time I try and help, I don't have the power. I realize this more often than I want to. And maybe it's just me. I don't know if it's you. But do you know where I see the depths of our depravity the most? Whenever I have to fly. I mean, the whole process of going to an airport will we'll just drain every ounce of Christianity and spirituality out of you. I mean, you get there, and it's all class divided, right? Silver preferred, gold preferred, this club, that club, and then there's like one line for the rest of us, you know, the scum of the earth. And then you go to that line, and then you get in the, into the line for security, and there's more TSA workers than there are people, but it takes you two hours to get through because they're frisking an 85-year-old woman to make sure she doesn't blow up the plane. You take off your watch and your belt. I dropped my watch. It was my favorite watch one time. The whole thing shattered. And then you get on the plane, right? And everybody in first class, the bulkheads, they're all like five foot three. I'm six foot seven. I'm in like the last row. And everybody's shoving stuff in to beat everybody into the overhead compartment. And then when you deplane, everybody, you know, if there wasn't some kind of protocol, we just run each other over. And I'm stuck on this phrase, right? And here, here's, here it is. I can love my family, and I can love people that love me. I can even love people that I don't know. But here's what I can't get by. Love them as myself? See, the whole time I'm at the airport, I'm trying to beat everyone out. I'm not saying to everyone else, oh, take my seat. Use my overhead compartment. Like, I'm not living life that way. And neither are you. That's why you're laughing. That should have been the question. So Jesus gives the parable. The first man that comes down, it says, by chance, is the priest. Now this one gets me, because the priest was a paid religious professional. He's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 17-mile journey. They worked shift work in the temple. He had probably been there at least three days to two weeks. He had been preparing messages, preparing songs, you know, butchering animals, lighting incense. He had been working hard. And you say, why in the world would a priest, why in the world would a religious person pass by this Samaritan? Well, one reason he was a Samaritan. But why do you drive by certain neighborhoods or around certain neighborhoods? Why do you avoid certain areas? This man resonates with me because he had already done his religious duty. 
He was tired. He had served people. He had worked hard. It's amazing how I can feel the same way. I worked all week at church. I was here on Sunday. I can go home and think, my gosh, I can't hear another problem, talk to another person, read another book, and think I fulfilled my religious duty. We get caught up in this kind of thing. Most of us never step out and do what God's called us to do. We'll never feel eternal life. We'll never fear his presence for two things, fear and safety. What it's going to cost us. Gary Haugen, he'll be here in the fall, leads IJM, International Justice Mission. Gary was a lawyer in Washington, and he saw what was going on with women, little girls taken into the sex trade, and he started IJM to get them out of that, and it's been a tremendous thing to watch. But Gary tells a story about when he was a little boy, and uh, his family went on a hiking expedition, and he had two older brothers, and he was quite shy and fearful. And when his dad was ready to take them hiking, he said, you know what, I'm going to stay in the visitor center. It's air-conditioned here, and they've got animals. They're stuffed, but they're animals. They can't hurt you, and it's really comfortable at the visitor center. And he talks about how his brothers went out, and they had this amazing experience, but Gary missed it because he wanted to be safe. After all these years of running IJM, he said, I've come to the conclusion, Jesus didn't die to make me safe. He died to make me brave. And you know what you're going to find out? Cul-de-sac Christianity where you hunker down and hide because of fear and you want security, there is no security. You know, think about it. Death's all around us. It really is. Every day someone has cancer. Every day someone gets in an accident. You're never going to avoid it. So you might as well be where God wants you to be. The priest passed him by on the other side. And then the Levite passed him by. He was an assistant. He kind of fits where you guys live. He thought by helping this guy he would be ceremonially unclean and get this, may lose his job, may lose his standing, may lose his position. How many times are we faced with that? But then a Samaritan comes. This man scorned by Jews. Verse 34 says he bandages his wounds with oil and wine clothes him, takes him to an inn, pays for it. Jesus said he had compassion on him. See, that's the work of God, compassion. Uh, compassion versus indifference. Indifference is where you just don't care. He had compassion. And it cost him. Cost him his schedule. We never think about this. Everybody has a schedule, especially here in America. We're so busy. You don't think this guy had a schedule? He had an animal, he had oil and wine, he had money. He was certainly going somewhere. This was a major inconvenience. He has to take the man down to a village. He definitely lost a lot of time. His safety was compromised. I mean, robbers were on this road because they knew people in Jerusalem had money and they were going to Jericho where the priests lived. So by helping the man, he could have been robbed. And then taking him into Jericho was a Jewish village. Josephus says if a Samaritan was found there, they could be killed. Even James and John, Jesus' disciples, when they saw Samaria, she said, should we call fire down from heaven? So certainly his safety was compromised. His status was compromised, associating with Jews, and it cost him about two weeks' wages, two denarii. Now I share with you when we started the parables that we always like to see ourselves as the protagonist, right? I'm the good Samaritan. I help people in need. And as much as I want to be this guy, I think too much of the time I'm the priest and the Levite. 
where I justify and I rationalize. Well, God, you'll send somebody else. Your shoulders are big enough. Or I don't have the money to help this guy. I don't have the, my house is too small. Or I have meager resources. I have nothing to offer. And don't we have a welfare system? Aren't there shelters? Now, I'm not saying these are easy, easy conundrums. They're very complex. And I'm not saying we throw caution to the wind. You know, we have to be wise as serpent, harmless as doves. Do you know what I think the point is? I think the point is, and I've struggled with this for a long time, is that left to our own devices, here's how we think. I study the Bible. I go to Calvary Chapel. I'm in the right movement. I'm in the word. Therefore, I'm in right standing with God. See, like the priest, we think we've done our religious duty. And Jesus said, no, you can't be hearers of the word of God only. When you hear the word of God, it produces something. It produces the love that God has for others. Compassion wells up in your heart, and it pushes you out. I believe with everything in my being that God sets these things up in our life. Notice what the scripture says, by chance, A priest came, a Levite came, a Samaritan. We know there's no chance. God sets these things up. Every day there's going to be something in our lives where God sets it up and we either act or we don't act. I've read enough to know I can't stop world poverty. I can't stop sex trafficking. I can't stop so many of the ills of life. But you know what? I can act on the one thing God puts in my path. I was at the zoo one time and I passed a beggar and I justified and rationalized, and I passed him. And I felt like God said this, and he's not saying it to you, he said it to me. How many beggars where you live do you pass? And I thought, geez, none. And I got it, and I went back and I gave the guy $5. Two months later, I was in Egypt, and there's a beggar every five feet. And that becomes a whole different story, right? See, again, these things aren't easy. It's like, what did God put in your path that day? I share with you guys for years, you've got to open your heart to the activity of God. You've got to read about human poverty. You've got to read about the lack of clean drinking water. You've got to read books on racism and let it steep in your spirit and let God prompt you. One of the prayers I pray is, God, open my eyes to the things around me. That's why we have Compassion Weekend. God, let me see a world in need. I can't help 30 or 300, but I can help one, two, or three. And I look around our church and I see this happening all the time. You know, we have so many people who have adopted. And I think adoption, you know, you can change a life forever. I look at people, support missionaries, or open up their homes, or travel. It's all about saying, God, you're a compassionate God. How can we make a difference? Last night, Adam Bruckner was at my house for dinner. And he feeds the homeless on Monday. And he works with after-school kids Tuesday through Friday, and he's lived in the inner city for the last 14 years. And, not, and God doesn't call us all to do that. But every time I look at Adam, he looks so alive. He, he's living eternal life. He's living in the way that God made for him. It's not easy. He has rough patches like we all do. But he's doing what God told him to do. I think Jesus' exhortation here is not who is my neighbor but how can I be a neighbor to someone? 
What is the situation God's going to put in my path this week, next week, two months from now, where I have to be neighborly? Because James says you can't love God who you can't see if you don't love your neighbor who you can see. And we look at what happens in Baltimore and Ferguson, and we look at all these hot spots around the world with Israelis and Palestinians and Northern Ireland, and you have to come to the conclusion, listen, nothing will change unless God changes a heart. Most of the difference being made in these places are made by people who have been touched by the kindness of God and then want to step out and do the same. We can't fill every need, but we need to be reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, which we Hardly ever read because we're so caught up with Matthew 24. Yeah, when's Jesus coming back? Wars and rumors of wars. You see what's going around the world and pestilence and we measure earthquakes. Yeah, Jesus is coming back. Yeah, but did you ever read chapter 25? That's about judgment and it's the only time Jesus talked about judgment. And he put his sheep on one hand and the goats on the other. And to the ones who he said enter now, you know, into the kingdom of heaven, he said, you were the ones when I was thirsty that gave me a drink. And you were the ones when I was hungry gave me something to eat, and you were the ones when I was in prison, visited me. And when I was naked, you clothed me. The man asked, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer was absolutely nothing. Zero. There's nothing you can do to inherit anything. If I leave money to my children or my home to my children, they're going to get an inheritance because they're my children, not because they did something. Please don't miss the point of the parable. Jesus wasn't saying, look, go out and have compassion and be kind to people, and then you'll enter into heaven. He said many would come to him in the end and say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name, we did that in your name, and he's like, depart from me, I never knew you. There's people around the globe that are compassionate. We have eternal life. And you can experience it now on the merits of another, on the finished work of Christ. But when his spirit comes into our body, when we're infused with his love, we become his hands and we become his feet. And the way we love God certainly is by communing with him and speaking him and prayer is a beautiful thing and communing through his word. But when that tangibly extends itself to another human being in need, it's when the world turns around and say, oh my gosh, something's different. That's counterculture. And the early church did it. They turned the world upside down. And they were compassionate on the sick and they built hospitals and they brought something to the human race that has never been seen before. Now, we live in a time and that's all done by the professionals. But there's still a way for us to be counterculture. There's still a way for us to do something that no one else will do. And Jesus said, we can learn from this despised Samaritan who everybody looked at as unreligious and yet was the man who really loved God. I encourage you this week, live with your eyes wide open. Pray bold prayers. Ask God to make you brave that you might feel his presence. If you don't do that, can I tell you where you're headed? Church is too long. Church is too short. They don't play the songs I like. The songs are too loud. They're too quiet. Pastor Bob always says the same examples. He preaches too long. He preaches too... See where you're going to go? That's where you're going to wind up. You're going to wind up cynical, miserable. You're going to say you're dry and you need to go to another church and then you're going to go there and that's not going to work out because 
This is a beautiful thing where we sit together as the family of God, but where we feel his presence is when we're walking where he walks and where God is is with the poor, the stranger, the marginalized. And when we meet them, we meet him. Father, we thank you for your word.